From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. My name is Lindy West. I am an author and columnist. I wanted to be a veterinarian because kids love animals. Then that morphed briefly into farmer. And I drew a a map of our backyard and where we would put all of the animals. And my mother vetoed that. Then actually after that, for a long time, I wanted to, I wanted to make video games. I wanted to make computer games. In her first book, Shrill, Lindy West offers this memorable take on the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. She's the perfect feminazi caricature. Fat, loud, irrational, violent, overbearing, constantly hitting a hedgehog with a flamingo. Oh shit, she taught me everything I know. In an age in which internet umbrage is almost as rampant as internet trolling, West, as funny as she's incisive, distinguishes herself as a writer who cuts to the heart of the matter. Lindy, can you tell us about your early life growing up in Seattle? It was great. I really lucked out in the family department. I had wonderful, wonderful parents who were funny and supportive and smart. You know, it was kind of idyllic, honestly, looking back. And then we moved when I was four to a suburb of Los Angeles because my my father worked in advertising and he got a job at an ad agency in LA. Uh, That was also idyllic. (laughs) It was just the same, only hotter. And we lived in a a housing development with a pool. So I swam every day. My my hair was green because I was a real like toe-headed blonde kid. And so my hair turned green from the pool. Um, And I just remember feeling really unselfconscious, just happy, curious kid. I read every single thing I could get my hands on. When I ran out of things to read, I just read everything again. Uh, My dad was really, really creative and really funny. He was always you know, writing plays for my friends and I to perform, which at the time I was also tremendously shy. I was debilitatingly shy. So we would sort of perform in the basement. Like No one could see the performance. (laughs) It was really, I was shy uh, around people I didn't know, which included, you know, my teachers at school. I once peed my pants in class in third grade because I was too afraid to ask the teacher if I could go to the bathroom. The teacher who I, you know, had known for months. Um, But I, and I don't know what exactly I was afraid of, just that, I don't know, it was this just fear of, um, I don't know, making any sort of... Making a noise of of asking somebody a question. Or annoying someone or... Yeah, it was just this fear of opening myself up to any extra attention, I think. I I was really... Even though I was really happy, um, I think I was aware that I was kind of big and took up too much space. And in retrospect, I think... Part of my shyness was this fear of people noticing me and noticing that I was tall and big and kind of awkward. I mean, it's interesting what you say, because those are things that most children, you know, not everybody pees their pants in third grade. It might be fourth grade. It might be some (laughs) other some other terrible thing. But those uh, sentiments about not wanting to stand out in any way in that school context and how school and home are two very different places. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe it was just normal. I remember myself as a fat kid, but if I look at pictures, I was not a fat kid. I was just, I was kind of a chubby kid. Like but, like all kids are, most kids are at some point in their growing cycle. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I might be sort of retrofitting that story with my modern anxieties. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe it was normal to just be super shy and pee on the floor. <laughs> 
Um, but I certainly was at, at a certain point in my youth, I became aware that I took up too much space and that I had friends who were smaller than me and that they fit the mold of what a girl was supposed to be like better than I did. I think speaking as somebody who's been always been very tall, I totally understand what you're, what you're saying. It's about that sense of how much space you should occupy. And also I think what's interesting is how much noise you can make as well. Your book, Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman, you know, often for women in public space, it's not just how much space they can occupy. It's how much oxygen do they take up in the room? How much noise yeah. do they make? Yeah, the, the literal and the figurative really sort of uh, feed into each other. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I women are told to be small physically and small in their impact and um, quiet, literally, and also, you know, not forceful in their opinions and, and not trying to assert themselves and, and make too much sort of figurative noise in the world. You mentioned that until you were eight or nine, you lived in this, the, the happiness of and the security of that family life. I heard about some research today on the news about children's resilience and self-esteem. And they were talking about a long-term study of many kids. And, you know, the, one of the most dramatic things is the decline in resilience and self-esteem for girls between the ages of eight, nine, and the teenage years. What happened to you over that kind of transitional period? That's a great question. You know, I, I think the nuance of this gets lost a lot. It definitely gets lost in interviews because it's easier and quicker to just say, yeah, you know, I had low self-esteem as a teenager and then I broke out of it in my 20s. Um, and I don't know that I even accurately conveyed it in the book. It wasn't exactly that I had low self-esteem. I always knew that I was smart and capable and funny you know, I, I knew that I had value, but I was also very aware of the system in which I lived and that the system did not consider me valuable um, and that there was this hierarchy of women's bodies and women's how aesthetically pleasing women were. And that was basically the only metric for value. And I knew where I sat. I was aware of where I sat in that system. So it was this sort of combination of it wasn't exactly like low self-esteem isn't right. I had I had high self-esteem. I was just sort of a realist about it, I guess, you know. And so I, I was very angry and very resentful of having to grow up in that system. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that it occurred to me that there was another path out of that. I thought the only path was to lose weight and turn myself into the right kind of woman. And then the big turning point for my life was realizing that I could reject the system and be happy in the body that I have and, and live a full life and demand respect and demand that my humanity be recognized in this body. And that it's not only a much more effective way out, uh, because, you know, on, on a practical level, 95% of diets fail. People actually don't succeed in changing their bodies very often. But beyond that, it's also the only real way out because thin women struggle with body issues too. And where people of all sizes are placed on this hierarchy and there is no actual genuine way to achieve perfection. And so the only escape is to reject the system entirely. I think that that's true. And what you were talking about in feeling it's, that it's not about low self-esteem is very clearly about that difference between an inner world and a family world where you are highly valued. And that intersects with an outer world that has a completely different set of criteria that it is judging people on. And that because your kids 
endlessly adaptable and smart. They learn that hierarchy very well. People who go around saying that, you know, you shouldn't, children shouldn't be given marks. Kids know exactly where they sit in, in those kinds of, of hierarchies. And at some point, you're making a decision about, do I try and succeed in that system? And, you know, even if you do try, it's probably never going to work. I don't know if you find people who are happy teenagers. Honestly, I'm, I was as close to a happy teenager as you can get, even with this sort of crushing loneliness and sense of, of failure that I lived with. That's the message. It's that you failed at your, your job. Your job, which is to be a girl. Exactly. Uh, which comes with a whole lot of things about what a girl means. Right. So I felt, yeah. I felt like I was, uh, I lived outside of my gender. I had failed to tick all the boxes. I, I had failed at my job as a woman. And, um, I knew that it wasn't fair, but I didn't, I didn't think there were any other options. When you talk about loneliness, do you mean, you know, loneliness, a kind of a literal not having enough friends or that sense of being on your own in your predicament? No, neither. I mean, in a much more mundane, traditional way, like just no boys liked me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yeah. I mean, I had, I had tons of friends. I was very happy. I mean, I, I didn't have fat friends actually. Uh, and we certainly, you know, the, the sort of other chubby girls, it's not like we talked about this stuff. It was much too uncomfortable to talk about. And, and I, so that's something that I cherish now in my life, being friends with other fat women who even something as basic as, as exchanging clothes, going shopping together instead of going shopping with my thin friends where I stand in the sunglasses aisle while they try clothes on. But anyway, um, I just felt very left out of all of the rites of passage that everyone else was going through, you know, first kiss, first date, just someone liking you. I didn't get to do any of that until, until much later. And it's just another thing that made me feel alienated from being a quote unquote normal girl. And and it was, I mean, I don't even know (laughs) if a boy had asked me out. I don't even know if I would have known what to do. I'm sure I would have been terrified and, you know, uh, it's not like I would have had some sort of healthy, thriving relationship. But at the time, it just felt, I felt so deficient and broken. But yeah, so, so lonely in that sense. And again, I probably would have had some horrible boyfriend who was not even fun to hang out with. So it's not like I was actually missing out on something real. real. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. a writer at school? Was that something that you enjoyed when you were growing up? I loved reading. And so it was natural for, you know, English to be my favorite class. And I wrote constantly when I was little. I, I that was I, I was just obsessed with, with writing little stories and illustrating them and stapling them to make little books. And I was good in English class. You know, I was good at writing essays. Then I ended up going on to do that at university and get an English degree. But there was something about creative writing that w- was just beyond... It felt like I wasn't qualified. (laughs) You know, it just seemed it was so intimidating. Like writers are people who have ideas, you know, who exist on this sort of brilliant plane where they see the world in such a clear way. And they I I, I, it just it was so intimidating to me. And it seemed so presumptuous to think that I I could be one of those people. The idea that, that writers have to be extraordinary and finding it very hard to put yourself into that. Yeah, exactly. It, it just seemed impossible. And, um, I was so, I loved literature so much that the idea of thinking of myself as one of, as one of these people, it felt, 
you know, like hubris or something. It was just uh, that and, would be punished by the gods, right? Exactly. I didn't, I didn't want to be punished by the gods. Um, and, and also, you know, and there's just a there's a healthy dose of just regular standard teenage insecurity in there, and and also feeling there's a, a lot of a big part of being a fat person is feeling like you're in this state of temporary failure and you don't have the right to ask for attention or validation or even strive for success until you fix this problem the, that so you in have. in the present. So it, those things are for, just are for the future. future. Those things are for thin Lindy whenever she gets here. <laughs> and so it was really hard for me to think of, of myself as, as anything but a work in progress whose life w- existed only in the future. Yeah. And in terms of the kind of writing at school, I mean, the I was, and the opinion was squashed out of everything. Essays needed to be objective and backed up with examples mm-hmm. and facts. So, Definitely. so not really a place to explore what you personally thought about things. Yeah, absolutely. And I also, because I had such a lovely childhood and relatively happy teenage life, I also didn't feel like I was very interesting. <laughs> You know, you know, you sort of think of great art as coming from trauma. And I, I had a, like a cool time, you know, Um, even when, when I had to write my college entrance essay, I couldn't come up with anything. I was like, I have no hardships. (laughs) I mean, and of course, in retrospect, I could have written about being a woman and being a fat woman. And of course, there were things that affected my life that I just didn't that I thought were normal. Well, they weren't defined as those kind of dramatic misfortunes. Exactly. Not orphaned by the side of the road. I didn't grow up in a cult, you no. know, <laughs> which and, or a war. Um, actually, funnily enough, that this same issue came up when it was time to write my book proposal for Shrill. I was like, so it said to my agent, like, I don't have a thing, you know. <laughs> What am I going to write about? Like what? Nothing has happened to me. But, you know, of course, that's that's not true. And there is value in the, you know, day to day experiences of people. But um, I think, you know, I ended up writing about one of my best friends who was just excellent at everything and beloved. (laughs) And I wrote about sort of growing up in her shadow and, you know, loving her just as much as everyone else, but always being that combined with being shy. It was like I didn't exist, which is kind of a weak essay topic. (laughs) But I did get into college. So well, exactly. It worked. I mean, you said that you know, there was this period of your life of feeling like a failure and and really working out at some point in your 20s that this was a system that was a trap that you were never going to succeed in and you had to be able to be free and happy and real outside of that system. What were the things that helped you to see that? The internet was incredibly helpful. Um, I started reading sort of guiltily late at night, like fat fashion blogs, which sounds so frivolous, so trivial, but I had never seen happy fat people before. Like I had never seen fat people presented as anything but a before picture in a weight loss ad, or I, I mean, I write about this in the book. You can be Baloo in <laughs> right, exactly. You can be your possibilities. You can be Ursula the Sea Witch or the round teapot lady in Beauty and the Beast, who's like a, you know, you can be this sort of sexless mother figure. The idea of a, a, a person my age just living a happy 
life wearing clothes and smiling was revolutionary. It was so revolutionary that I I felt nervous looking at it. I felt sort of anxious because I had spent so long trying to pretend like I wasn't a fat person. I was just a failed thin person. I still had that idea that um, thin Lindy was was coming and, you know, someday I would I would become my real self and my real life could start. And this was my first admission that, hey, I might be fat forever, which at the time was my greatest fear. I might be fat forever. And if I'm fat forever, what do I want my life to be? Do I want my life to be this sort of stasis and, and you know, this, this feeling of, of failure and waiting and apologizing? Or could I be one of these people who is putting themselves out there and, you know, self-identifying as fat? That was huge. Being able to say, you know, I'm fat and to and to reclaim the word and, and try to shed the stigma, that was the turning point, definitely. You said that a series of photos taken by the actor Leonard Nimoy was, was something that changed your perspective on being fat as well, that he did a series of very beautiful black and white pictures called The Full Body Project where he photographed fat women naked. Was that another part of seeing those kind of images? Yeah, it was slightly different, related but different. You know, the... Fat fashion blogs were about fat people living life. And the Full Body Project is an art project. These are art photos and they're presented as objects of beauty. And, you know, at first I was really, really uncomfortable because I spent my whole life trying to hide what my body looked like. And to to see it presented like that was very threatening and, and you know, alarming. And then I started to look at them and to have them presented in this way so confidently, like this is a beautiful image with such confidence that you can't like, what am I going to argue with the the, the artist? I, I don't know. It, it just it gave me this inroad to believe in it. You know what I mean? And then you start to break down what beauty means. And um, I started to look at these women's bodies sort of piece by piece, like, OK, here's a, a curve of of skin. What if I isolate that and look at it? Is this curve of this woman's stomach and by extension, my stomach, is that different than, you know, the curve of a breast or an elbow? And is one more beautiful than the other? And is if we zoom in and you can't tell the difference, why is one well, ugly? Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Why is one ugly and shameful and one beautiful and desirable? And once you start to do that, it sort of just it starts to really unfold all around you and, you and and dominoes start to topple, you know, um, to a point where it gets confusing. Because once you start to do that, then fashion has no meaning. And, you know, why am I painting my nails? And, you know, we could go there, you can get really radical with it. It's almost there's one thing that is about daily life and how you how you work in that the life that you live and the other thing about a more abstract idea of beauty particularly if those images are set up in all of the categories that say this is about art this is about an idea of beauty we have culture and culture makes decisions for us um, and I think as long as you're thinking critically about the world around you and identifying systems and um, making sure that you're not coercing other people into living smaller and smaller lives based on aesthetic constraints you know does that make sense it totally um, does. I think that's a sound way to live yeah. I you know one of the most important things about the full body project is that I, it was sort of like Tumblr, uh, you know, fat fashion blogs brought me to neutrality where I was like, okay, I can exist. 
and it's okay. And then the full body project helped me push past that into into sort of a positive place where I'm not just beautiful despite my body. I can be beautiful because of my body. And that is still really challenging. It's still even challenging for me because I still live in the same culture and we're, we're bombarded with this, these images, you know, even with body positivity starting to infiltrate, you know, fashion and media. Um, it's still very, very, very narrow, very narrow. There aren't really women who look like me, let alone women bigger than me in magazines and and so that's still a struggle but it's it changed my life more than anything else i think you were hired originally as a film editor for the stranger an alternative weekly publication based in seattle yes well before that i I freelanced for them for maybe four years before i was hired full-time to run the film section i started actually as a uh, writing theater reviews uh, for which I was not qualified. <laughs> so, but I did how it did anyway. you do that? Well, you know, because if you're a, a human being with a perspective and you can construct a sentence and you can form an opinion, there's value in that. And um, I just tried to review what I saw honestly. And, you know, I mean, kind of part of your job as a critic is to tell people where to spend their money. And so... I sort of approached it like that, but I had no a great amount of knowledge about about theater. And I think the Seattle theater community was relieved when I moved on to writing about movies. <laughs> um, and, and I was a little more I felt a little more solid writing about film. Oh, but I the way that I got there was I, I just I graduated from college with an English degree. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I that I loved books and I thought, you know, could I work in publishing? I think I, I tried to find jobs to apply to, couldn't even figure out where to cram myself in, like where to get a foothold. So I ended up taking the closest thing I could find, which was an internship at a free magazine, a parenting magazine that was not a real magazine. It was like a pamphlet, basically, that you get on the street that has a bunch of ads for daycares and clowns, birthday clowns. And then there was an editorial staff of two plus me, the intern. Um, and they just sort of churned out, you know, I mean, articles that no one ever read to, to pad the clown pamphlet. So <laughs> I did that. It was horrible. Uh, we, the editorial staff was horribly exploited by the horrible businessmen that owned it. It, it was such a mess that basically the interns me wrote the entire magazine. So I, they would just give me these assignments, like write a thousand words about what to do if your child is bullying other children. I was like, I am 19 or (laughs) I have no idea. I guess I was 21 or 22. You could remember childhood. Yeah. I I mean, and again, it was sort of like a precursor to my days as a theater critic. Like, okay, well, let me just use some common sense here and think about, I don't know, what, what do I think? Uh, And sort of did my best. Uh, and then I, I moved on from there. As horrible as it was, it gave me clips. You know, I, I had something uh, that was a print magazine. I could take it on to my next job. But I moved back to Seattle, went back to my college summer job as a cashier at a little retail store. And uh, while I was doing that, on my days off, I did an internship at The Stranger, which is a weekly, alternative weekly newspaper in Seattle. And I was the theater intern because that's what was open. 
And at the very end of my internship, she gave me a little like 75 word assignment to review a play. And I, I did a good job. I went into it with my English major critical thinking skills and I analyzed the play and, and the performance. You compared and contrasted. I did. <laughs> and I made some jokes because that was the tone, you know, the tone of the paper was very sort of funny and, and uh, irreverent. And, and so I wrote a funny little thing. I had no idea if I could do it or not, but I, I stayed up all night. And I, I remember thinking, what does good writing sound like? And then I <laughs> sort of mimicked that. But my editor liked it. And I think it was, I was just really lucky. I, I don't know. She So she started to give me a little assignment here and there. They started to pay me to write, you know, $25 a pop or something. And I would go cover these plays and write these little reviews. And then the theater editor became the editor of the film section. And she brought me with her. And so then I started writing film reviews and then she left and they hired me. And then I suddenly had a full-time writing job. Oh, wait, I did have another full-time writing job. I did move on <laughs> while I was freelancing for The Stranger. I moved on from my cashier job to a different day job, which was I was the editor of, well, I started as the assistant editor and eventually became the editor of a tourist magazine called Where Magazine, like Where Am I? Uh, which actually is in my hotel room in Sydney because it's the they have editions all over the world. It was a, an editorial staff of two, which then became one when my boss left and they refused to hire a replacement for me. So I became the boss and the entire staff. And I just wrote this whole magazine every month. And since it's a tourist magazine, you have to cover the same material every month <laughs> because it's different readers. You know what I mean? So it was like every month I had to figure out a new way to write about the Space Needle. Uh, and the same restaurants and the same museums. And it was actually kind of like a grand two-year writing exercise. Uh, or three, sounds like, it sounds like very rigorous years. training. Yeah, exactly. And I was very relieved when The Stranger hired me to write about movies instead. And that was the start of my, my real career. When you were there in 2011, you had a public exchange with the editorial director, Dan Savage. Um, you said you had to officially out yourself as a fat person. What was it like to publish something like that? You know, that obviously you, you Dan Savage was somebody that you worked with, who in many other ways you respected. But you reached a point where you really had to say something in terms of what he was publishing. He wasn't publishing anything out of the norm at the time. You know, it was very fashionable to tell it like it is about fat people, call fat people on their BS. The idea was that fat people were just lazy and were refusing to be thin <laughs> or were not smart enough to figure out how to be thin. And we needed to shame them into submission for the sake of our children and our insurance premiums. So that was a normal thing to say. Um, and, and as a person with a big platform and uh, a very fit person, Dan was into that. <laughs> he was into it. You know, I would sit there at my desk and these posts would go up that I found very dehumanizing. And I would think, you know, does, doesn't he know that I work here? Like, does he think about me when he hits publish on these posts? And the stra the culture of the stranger was very combative and transparent. And, you know, we disagreed with each other and uh, sometimes fiercely and we yelled at each other and we would fight on the blog where people could see it. You know, that was a big part of the culture. So I thought... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and and I did try to, talking to him privately first. Um, and The Stranger, you know, it's a small indie newspaper. It doesn't exactly have an HR department. There weren't really a lot of channels that I could go through. So I tried emailing him directly. 
and he didn't really take me seriously. And so then I, I thought, well, I know what Dan would do. <laughs> you know, Dan would write an impassioned essay and put it up on the blog. And so that's what I did. And it was it was really scary because not only was this confronting my boss, it was the first time I'd ever talked publicly about being fat or really said it to myself. I mean, this is happening right in that time when I'm looking at those fashion blogs and I'm, I'm looking at this Leonard Nimoy photo project. And, you know, and I'm, I'm in the tail end of a, of a bad relationship with a, a guy who didn't want to be seen with me in public because he was embarrassed. And all of these things were coming to a head at the same time. And I remember you know, talking to a close friend of mine at the paper, because the paper really felt like a family. I mean, I was really close with everyone there. And she was like, she sort of helped me draft this piece. And she gave me some edits. And I got it into shape where I liked it. And and I just had to kind of close my eyes and, and click publish. Maybe I was naive, but I, I didn't know that it was going to be quite such a big deal. <laughs> so tell us, what was the reaction to it? Unbeknownst to me, uh, because Dan, by that time, I think it was 2000. 11. Dan was already kind of a big star. He's a great speaker. He's great on his feet. Like I love watching him on, you know, cable news shows arguing with bigots. He's really really good at his job. He was great at running the paper too, but at this point he was not there very much. You know, he's traveling all the time speaking at schools and so I didn't know, you know, it was normal for him to not be in the office, but I didn't realize that he was actually like at a writing retreat in a cabin in a forest with no internet access. <laughs> So I published my thing on a Friday and he didn't even see it until I think, you know, Monday or Tuesday. And so came sort of came back to civilization to this complete collapse of the, you know, the paper was just in chaos because, you know, there were 500 comments on the post, which in that community is a ton. So this was, you know, this was up to 500 comments of my community in Seattle all arguing with each other about whether or not I crossed the line, whether or not fat people are human beings, whether or not I'm disgusting, whether, you know, a lot of people were backing me up and were really grateful that I had finally said something. And so he he comes back into this shitstorm, which I feel bad about. I, to this day, I feel I, I, I wish that I had known where he was and maybe I would have timed this a little bit better, but oh well, sorry. And I, I just posted the thing and then I, I went home for the weekend and, and tried not to read the comments, although I think I read every single one. And then Dan came back and it was a huge thing and he wrote a, a kind of dismissive, not very not very thoughtful response that I found really insulting, actually. Um, and going back and reading it when I was writing this book, I discovered that it did not age well at all. It was, I mean, if someone posted that now, there would be, it would be a problem. But at the time it was, you know, it was part of this back and forth and he posted his thing and I, I never responded and we kind of never talked about it, except we did have to have a meeting. We had to have a staff meeting where we had to talk about how Dan was very upset. <laughs> like we had to have like a meeting about Dan's feelings, um, at which I think I started crying and yelling, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, are you kidding me? We have to talk about Dan's feelings right now. Um, cause you know, mine had never actually been addressed, but anyway, so it was this big drama at work and eventually Dan and I went out and had a beer a couple weeks later and sat down and, and, and finally, 
made peace because we really didn't he put his response up and then I never responded and then we didn't talk about it in the office and then he was gone again and then it was just awkward. But then we sat down and talked about it and it, it just became clear how how vast the gulf of understanding was. You know, I remember he said something to me like, you know, I you know, I get it. I get where you're coming from. I want to sit down and eat a whole box of cereal in one sitting, too. And I was like, no, I don't eat a whole box. <laughs> no, you don't get it. Yeah. You don't. Like, this yeah. is, that's not my experience. And the fact that you're assuming that that's why my body looks the way that it does is the problem. And I, and I remember I said, um, you and I, if we go eat at a restaurant together and we both sit on a broken chair, if your chair breaks, it's because you sat on a broken chair. And if my chair breaks, it's because I'm fat, you know, in the eyes of the the other people in the room, even if we sat on the same broken chair. The, the gulf between the kind of experiences that you've had, that you both had of those issues around the body was was too big to get across in some ways. Well, I think that conversation helped. I think we got somewhere and and the way that he wrote about fat people changed. It's really hard to listen and change, especially if you still kind of think that you're right. <laughs> and I think there's something about those kinds of things happening on a public platform as well. This obviously didn't put you off those kind of combative, difficult to put out there, those critiques of people in the public eye, all of those kinds sort of criticising uh, what people were doing, trying to show that there's a different way to look at things. Is that something that you feel obliged to do? Do you enjoy that sense of that combat or is it something that's hard to do? No, that was absolutely the beginning of my career, the, the way that I think of my career now. That was a, a huge turning point. Uh, I started to see my platform as an opportunity to not just make people laugh or tell people what movie they should or shouldn't go see, but to realize that I could use media in this sort of performative way to make people's lives better, to advocate for people, to advocate for myself and to put my body on the line. You know what I mean? Um, and make people, I wish I, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's like, well, I think, I think there's a sense of, of making those really powerful arguments about issues, but not being afraid to be in it yourself as right. a human, as an embodied person and not being able to, not being afraid to argue from your own experience or your own feelings, but doing it in this very kind of clear, forceful way. There are a lot of things that we don't say because there are tremendous social consequences, especially at the time people didn't say I'm fat and I'm not ashamed. I'm fat and I have a right to live. I have a right to medical privacy and privacy in general. And I have a right to be treated like a human being. People didn't say that because when you say that, you get abused, you get horrifically abused. And so once I went through that and I made it out the other side and, and was fine and not only was fine, but heard from a lot of people that that was incredibly liberating and empowering to see because they'd never seen anyone in public stick up for them before, you know, that gets addictive, that feeling that that you're actually moving the world a little bit with your work. It's different than just making people laugh, which is also, you know, still sacred to me. So that's a that's a model that I carried forward into other arenas that are important to me. So, you know, into talking about sexual assault and talking about abortion, um, talking about online harassment and all of these issues that I think we have systems in place that very effectively deter people from challenging them head on. Because if you do, 
people go after you and make people your life. And there's a huge personal cost. There's or a huge personal cost. cost. And yeah. to just, if I, if I know that I'm right, if I know that my instincts on something are right, and I already have these coping mechanisms in place to sort of weather the storm, it's not just an opportunity, but it's a responsibility to do that for, for people who aren't at that in that place yet. The whole thing about being a writer on the internet has been so inextricably linked with your professional career that your success as a writer starting at the same time as these platforms are really coming into their own. And now if we look at the fact that you've made a very public decision to leave Twitter, can you tell us a little bit about that decision? It was a complicated decision to leave Twitter. I really like Twitter. <laughs> you know, I miss it a lot. I was good at Twitter. I knew how to use it to my advantage. It was also my main sort of conduit for information and especially for perspectives outside of uh, the perspectives that are usually reflected in mainstream media. You know, in America, at least, um, I, I don't know about here, but um, the media landscape in America is very, still very white and very male. Um, newsrooms have horrible diversity problems and that reflects, or, I mean, that impacts which perspectives are reflected on the pages of those papers and how stories are reported and how they're presented and, you know, on and on and on. And, and Twitter is an amazing vehicle for having news interpreted in real time from a huge plurality of perspectives. And I really mourn the loss of that. And I have not found a good replacement. You know, I kind of just have to uh, wait for people that I trust to repost Twitter threads onto Facebook. And then I go read that. It's like a horrible system. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I had just been fighting for so long to make Twitter usable for me. It took so much labor to just even make the platform functional at all because my Twitter personally was so clogged with garbage and hate and abuse. Uh, and I was just tired. It's not that finally someone got to me. I, I couldn't have, I could not have been more accustomed to being trolled at that point. There, there was nothing new they could say. They had, they'd done it all, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I realized that I was staying because I didn't want them to win. They were trying to drive me away and I was not going to let them win. And then it occurred to me when the election happened and the trolls elected a troll president <laughs> that I was still playing their game even by staying. I didn't want them to force me out. And instead, I was letting them force me to stay. You know what I mean? I just wanted to make my own decision independent of these people who I don't know and I don't respect and I have no uh, obligation to and who don't care about me. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought to myself, what do I want? And what I wanted was to get out of there. Um, and, you know, because I was spending, yeah, four or five hours a day arguing with children who were trying, you know, who were just trying to annoy me. What is that adding to my life? The, the election really galvanized me to do my best work. I want to do my best work in 2017. I want to make things that impact people's lives, you know, that make people feel less alone and that champion underserved perspectives and, and stories. And I just wanted that time back. And also, more importantly, 
I was just watching the way that Donald Trump uses Twitter every day. I was reading these tweets. They were so horrifying, just aggressive, dismantling complicated diplomatic relationships and harassing people, targeting individual people, trying to get people killed, honestly, in my opinion. And I just suddenly felt disgusting being in the same pool as Donald Trump. and I just needed to get away. But that said, I'm not trying to lead a crusade or a mass exodus. You know, I, I want everyone to do what's best for them. I just wasn't living my best life on Twitter anymore. <laughs> In the age of Trump, what do you think the future holds? It's scary. It's really scary there right now. I don't know how else to, I don't know a more eloquent way to describe it. Just everyone I know is so scared. Of what? I mean, of a million different things. You know, my trans friends are scared of of being murdered or being forced back into the closet or being forced to hide for the rest of their lives because they can't go in public spaces and use the restroom. My, um, you know, my immigrant friends are terrified of, of being deported and their, their families being torn apart. There's, he's, um, he's attempting to destroy so many things at once that it's impossible to even answer that question. Any, oh, is there something that you like? <laughs> Anything at all? Donald Trump's trying to burn it down. So basically people who care about the biosphere, people who care about not dying in a nuclear war, people who care about having health care, people who care about trans people and gay people and immigrants and Muslims continuing to be alive, people who care about abortion, uh, women's health. I mean, everything is in danger right now. And it's just terrifying. And so when we talk about hope, it's thin, but... Um, People are more galvanized than I've ever seen. What it's really going to come down to is the vast swath of people who think of themselves as apolitical and who don't pay attention to politics at all and think that there's just always a grown up in charge who's going to fix it. Getting those people to understand that they need their medicine, they need health care, and that, that there is not a grown up in charge and that they're going to die if they don't fight, that's going to be vitally important. And then we need the Republicans in Congress to grow a spine. We need to them to understand that if they don't start fighting Trump, they will be fired. Because right now they're just weighing the balance of, okay, who, like, who do I attach myself to? It, which is the safer bet in my own self-interest? Which is going to, which one, which choice is going to keep me in office? Siding with Trump or siding with the American people? And so that balance needs to be tipped. And that's what's going to save us or doom us, I think. Because um, right now, uh, America is incredibly polarized. Partisanship is completely entrenched. And um, I don't think you're going to change diehard Trump supporters. They're they're almost impossible to communicate with in a, in a really bizarre way. Um, but there are a lot of people who just don't know what's going on. And there are a lot of people who I think who might vote Republican, but who have no idea what's going on. And like, those are the people who need to be mobilized and need to start contacting their representatives and and letting them know that their job is to serve their constituents and not serve themselves. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Lindy West. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.